910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. So today we're going to talk about an entire book of the Bible that at first read seems kind of out of place. We will let you guess which book that is while we make a special announcement. Yeah, we need to make this announcement. While Proverbs 910 Ministries and this podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, has never endorsed the series, The Chosen, I have made a comment that I watched the first two seasons and didn't find anything that was really heretical. I even quoted a line from one of the episodes, which was still a good line, but I want to correct any kind of misconceptions on this. Season three of The Chosen has just been released. And this season has serious false teaching in it. Besides quoting the Book of Mormon, the writers have thrown biblical truth to the wayside and exchanged it for Hollywood-esque drama. It seems that while in the first season they tried to stick to Jesus's ministry in scripture while filling in the missing background information, mostly about the apostles' backgrounds and stuff, Now they have gone the way of so much false teaching and chosen instead to appeal to the masses rather than stick to biblical truth. Yeah, we strongly encourage any of you who watch The Chosen thinking it's a great way to understand Jesus's humanity or that it's good, pure entertainment to stop watching it now. The only true Jesus is found in the pages of scripture. And God has given us everything that we need to know and everything he wants us to know in the Bible. We're not to add or to take away from God's word. As Proverbs 35 through 6 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And I've been convicted of this. While the creators have clearly said at the beginning that this was a show and not meant to be used as theology, you know, I realized that for me watching, it was easy to distinguish between the parts that came out of scripture and the parts that were added to make it a fuller story. But I realized this is not the case with many who watch this series. In fact, Chris, we mentioned it a few episodes ago, more and more people are using the chosen over and above the Bible. We see post after post saying that they've learned so much about Jesus from this series. And we want you to understand that if you fall into this category, much of what you may be learning may not be truth at all. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, Rose. I see tons of posts and I never, I've never had a chance to watch it because we don't have enough stuff to have streaming anything. (laughs) Um, so, you know, it it appears to be the case with season three, that it's really bad. And like you said, Rose, they've gone off the rails theologically. So we just wanted to issue a disclaimer and implore all of you to line up the chosen with scripture. And that should be the rule for everything that we read or listen to or watch. Absolutely. And not to beat this to death, but I just want to complete my confession here. I went back and I rewatched season one and two looking specifically for theological errors. The first time I was just watching it, but this time I really concentrated on it. And I did find a few red flags. The biggest one being how they portrayed Jesus 
fretting and planning about what he said when he was planning the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is God. He never has to plan out what he says. Every word he speaks is the word of God and it's scripture. And certainly Jesus never frets about anything. Yeah. Fretting about what he's going to teach on. Mm, Okay. That's bad. And he he doesn't need anyone writing it down to keep his thoughts straight. (laughs) You and I need that for sure, but for sure. No, no. Okay. So we just wanted to clear that up and now we can move on to today's episode. Why is that book in the Bible? Yeah. And maybe you've guessed which book that is, or maybe you haven't, but there's no prize here either way, (laughs) but we won't keep you in suspense any longer. It's the tiny one chapter book of Philemon. Philemon is a letter written by Paul to a man named Philemon. And we call it a letter and not an epistle because there's a slight difference between the two. An epistle is a letter, but it's more formal. A letter is more personal. Usually the writer of a letter is personally and well acquainted with the recipient. Since Paul is writing to a person named Philemon, whom he knows personally, this is a letter. But understand that all of Paul's writings are sometimes called epistles and sometimes called letters. There's a difference, but it's not significant. So neither reference is wrong. But letter or epistle, Philemon is divinely inspired scripture that is meant to be read publicly and used for the edification of Christians of all time. It is. And that may leave us scratching our heads since the book of Philemon is basically Paul pleading for the forgiveness and release of Philemon's slave, Onesimus, who ran away. This book leads us to ask questions like, How can a letter asking for the release of a runaway slave possibly have application for us? Who was Onesimus that Paul got personally involved in this situation? Why does Philemon, a Christian, own slaves? Since Paul never actually condemns slavery in this letter, does Paul and ultimately God condone slavery? And of course, the big question, why is this book in the Bible? Well, let's dig in and find some answers. The book is only 25 verses long. That's unusual for Paul. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's why it's a letter. No, it is unusual for Paul because it's usually very lengthy. But we won't do what we normally do and read the whole passage. Instead, we will work through the text and then we will answer the questions that you posed, Rose. And those questions deserve answers because it can seem very odd to us that the Holy Spirit would divinely inspire Paul to write a letter that is about an individual slave. Like you said, does this show that God condones slavery? And that's a biggie because many people have attacked the Bible, accusing it of condoning slavery. There have been slave owners throughout history who have used the Bible as justification for owning slaves. That's right. And we are going to get to those questions. We may be surprised at some of the answers that we find in this tiny book and why it's included in the Bible. All right, Chris, first, let's give a little background, as we always do. Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, like you said, who was a wealthy Christian from Colossae in 62 AD while he, Paul, was in prison in Rome. It's Paul's shortest writing. Again, like you said, Chris, his are usually very lengthy. In fact, in the original Greek, it only contains 335 words. 
Sometimes that's one sentence for Paul in a book. Sometimes that's one sentence for me, <laughs> as you know, Rose. <gasps> and as we'll see, it is slightly different in Paul's other letters. It's a very personal writing of Paul and shows Paul's skill as a mediator and a counselor. In Philemon, we get the privilege of looking into one of Paul's private relationships and the interaction between them. And we see that Paul has a personal relationship with Philemon right in the introduction of the letter. And I'll read verses one to three. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's introductions in his epistles are never haphazard. It's never just, hey, Philemon, or hey, Ephesians Church, what's up? <laughs> Paul's always intentional with his words, and that includes his introductions. He starts this introduction calling himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Usually, he'll refer to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ in his introductions, as he does in his letter in, to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He uses the designation of apostle in his epistles to the Romans, both letters to the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Colossians, his, his two letters to Timothy and Titus. He makes references also in some of these letters that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But Philemon is the only one of his letters where he starts his introduction with his being a prisoner of Jesus Christ and doesn't mention being an apostle. And that could be because, as we said, at the time of writing this letter, Paul was a prisoner. He was a prisoner in Rome where his only crime was preaching the gospel. But that's most likely not why he starts his letter this way. I mean, after all, he was also in prison, the same prison, when he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They were all four were written around the same time. Most probable, the reason that Paul uses the title prisoner in this intro is twofold. First, when Paul writes his epistle and starts with his title as apostle, it's to give authority and weight to what he's about to say. Even the letters to his protege, Timothy, begin this way. And that's because what Paul tells Timothy is for the church. So Paul is a lending authority to his words. Peter does the same thing. In the very first verses of both First and Second Peter, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right. But here, Paul is writing to a friend as a friend, not as an authority. He's appealing to him on a brother to brother level. So he drops the title of apostle. But Philemon knew Paul well, as we'll see, and regarded him very highly. In fact, as we will also see, Philemon was indebted to Paul. So even without the title, Paul's words would carry a lot of weight with Philemon. They would. And the second reason Paul probably uses the term prisoner in his greeting is because he's about to plead for the forgiveness and release of Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. Paul is setting the letter up to show that he's in a similar position as Onesimus. Paul, like Onesimus, is a prisoner of the system. Even though neither had done anything wrong to deserve their captivity, they both found themselves prisoners. Paul is putting himself on the same level as Onesimus. This is classic Paul. Chris, as we know, Paul was a master at tailoring his delivery 
to his audience. Yeah, he absolutely was. Paul names Timothy in the introduction of the letter too. Timothy is Paul's young protege who he mentored and thought of as a son. Paul wrote the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy to this Timothy. This isn't the first time that Paul implicates Timothy in one of the epistles. He does it in his letter to the Philippians and the Colossians and the Corinthians and the Thessalonians too. And since this letter is to Philemon, who's a Colossian, he would have surely recognized Timothy's name. But even though Paul often lists who is with him at the time of the letter writing, he also lists Luke, Apollo, and Titus in some. The writings are always Paul's. That's right. And just to finish up with the intro, Paul addresses this letter to Philemon and also to Ophia, their sister, and Archippus, their fellow soldier, and to the church that was in Philemon's house. So real quickly, Chris, we just want to clarify who these other people are. Ophia is most likely, and there's no debate about it really, Philemon's wife. Paul respectfully and affectionately includes her in his greeting. Archippus is probably the pastor of the church in Colossae. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 4.17, Paul says, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, the church that Paul says in Philemon's house could be either that a faction of the church was actually meeting at Philemon's house, or it could be Paul talking about Philemon's family. Here's John Calvin's take on this. He says, by employing these terms, he bestows the highest praise on the family of Philemon. And certainly it is no small praise of a householder that he regulates his family in such a manner as to be an image of the church and to discharge also the duty of a pastor within the walls of his dwelling. So obviously Calvin thought he was talking about just Philemon's family. Right. After the intro, Paul spends a paragraph telling Philemon how thankful he is for Philemon because as Paul says in verse four, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So it seems like Paul may be buttering Philemon up, but Paul is always quick to dispense praise. So we shouldn't think that way. He's always quick to dispense praise, support, or encouragement to his friends or to other believers in the churches. I love what Matthew Henry says about this, and it's very convicting. He says, faith in Christ and love to him should unite saints more closely than any outward relation can unite the people of the world. Paul, in his private prayers, was particular in remembering his friends. We must remember Christian friends much and often as their cases may need, bearing them in our thoughts and upon our hearts before our God. And that's the end of Matthew Henry's quote. And it's, it's really convicting to me. Yeah. It's me very too. convicting. And he's absolutely right. And Paul does do it all the time. We see it over and over again. Christians need to pray for each other, especially those Christians who are close to us. You know, it's a radical concept, but we have more in common and closer ties with fellow believers than we do with our unbelieving blood relatives. And that's just the fact. It, it's just the truth. Blood may be thicker than water, but it isn't thicker than faith in Jesus. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris. It certainly doesn't mean we don't keep trying to bring our unbelieving family members and friends around and continually pray for them. 
But in the end, the divide will always be between believers and unbelievers. The whole Bible divides believers and unbelievers, sheep and goats, wheats and tares. Jesus said it himself about families. He did. He did. That's right. Jesus said he's come to divide families. And we know that's hard to hear. Now, you might be thinking, you know, but Paul makes it a point in several places to say that we should live at peace with everyone, if at all possible. And of course, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And none of that contradicts this. We're to show the love of Jesus to everyone, believers and unbelievers, friends and foes. In fact, we are called to show radical love to the unbelieving world. Paul shows that in his letter to the Colossians. He says in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So we are to love unbelievers and witness the gospel to them anytime and anywhere we can. But at the end of the day, our biggest focus should be on our fellow believers. It's what Paul's entire love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. All right, so let's move on to the meat of Paul's letter. Like we said, Paul writes this letter because Philemon's slave, Onesimus, ran away to Rome, where he ended up hooking up with Paul and staying with him for a while and helping him. We said that Paul was in prison at this point. But Nero and the Roman government allowed him to be on house arrest, at least at this point. Now, he had to pay for all his own expenses, including renting a house, but he was allowed to have visitors who would often come and stay with him, and they would help him and care for him and bring him the things he needed. Onesimus was one of these people. Paul says to Philemon in verses 8 to 10, accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. We see again that Paul, in his choosing to drop the title of apostle, is not writing Philemon out of authority. He could throw his weight around with Philemon, and he has certainly done it with other letters. He even said he is bold enough to do it. But instead, for the sake of their friendship, he's writing friend to friend, making an appeal for Onesimus and entreating Philemon to come to a godly conclusion on his own. Paul gets to the heart of the matter in verses 11 to 16, and I'll read those now. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here we see Paul's mastery as a Christian witness, a Christian mediator, a Christian counselor. He starts off by saying how thankful he is for his Christian friend. Then he says, friend to friend, we need to talk about a situation in your life that needs rectifying. 
Paul isn't calling out Philemon for the sin of being a slave owner. And we're going to talk more about that shortly. He's appealing to his friend that this particular slave is a brother in Christ and much more valuable as a free man than a slave. And understand that Paul's taking a big chance sending Onesimus back to Philemon. It shows the amount of confidence he has in his friend Philemon. A slave running away was a huge deal. At this time under Roman law, there were no limits to the punishment a slave owner could inflict on a runaway slave. Paul is well aware of this. But again, he's trusting in his friend and ultimately Paul's trusting in God that God will bring Philemon's heart around on this subject. Yeah. And Paul helps nudge Philemon's heart by telling him that Onesimus has become a son to him. Paul's affection for Onesimus is so great that he says that sending Onesimus back to Philemon is like sending his own heart back. That's a pretty strong sentiment. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Paul says that Onesimus was invaluable to him while he was with him. But Paul knew that the right thing to do was to send him back to Philemon since legally Philemon owned him and Onesimus ran away. And again, Paul isn't commanding Philemon to come to the right decision, but he does try to persuade him. First, by emphasizing the high regard that he has for Onesimus, like we said, he calls him his heart. He says that he's appealing on behalf of his child, Onesimus. In Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which was written around the same time as Philemon, Philemon would have heard Paul call Onesimus his faithful and beloved brother. So while Paul isn't throwing his weight around as an apostle, he's making it very clear how precious Onesimus is to him. Yeah, he is. And he does something else to persuade Philemon. He says that while Onesimus was invaluable to him, he sent him back because it was the right thing to do. Kind of an open-ended challenge for Philemon to now do the right thing himself by forgiving Onesimus and ultimately setting him free. Paul implores Philemon to consider that perhaps Onesimus's running away had a bigger purpose. Paul says to him, perhaps he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul is saying that in Christ, all are equal. Standing, gender, status, none of that determines superiority in the kingdom of God. And Paul is asking Philemon to not just forgive Onesimus for running away and not punish him for it, but to accept him as a brother and set him free permanently. Because again, Onesimus is much more valuable as a free brother in Christ than he is as a slave to Philemon. Absolutely. Paul said that perhaps he was parted as your slave for a while so that you can have your brother back forever is again a reminder that our bond as believers, our eternal bond is stronger than any earthly bond. And that makes sense since our earthly bonds are temporary and our eternal bonds are forever and come from God. Paul goes on in his letter to Philemon in verses 17 to 20 saying, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. That's classic Paul again. He's writing as a friend, not as an authority that doesn't keep him from putting his thumb on the scale of it. <laughs> Definitely. Just to paraphrase Paul's words here that you read, Chris, he's saying, all right, so Philemon, if you consider me a brother and a friend, you're going to treat Onesimus as you do me. If he's cost you anything, I'll repay it. Even though you owe your very life to me. I, Paul, am writing this personally to you. Oh, if you do this, you will not only be doing my heart good, you will be doing it for Christ. Paul then goes on to say at the end of the letter, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. And that's the end of scripture. So here's Paul saying, I'm confident you're going to do the right thing here, Philemon. I'm asking you to prepare for a visit from me. While Paul may have used his influence to push the situation to the desired outcome, like you said, Chris, he put his thumb on the scale a bit. He has complete confidence in Philemon. And ultimately, his confidence is in God. And his confidence is that Onesimus will not only not be punished, but will be freed by Philemon and will become a brother to Philemon in the faith. Right. So here's this short and sweet letter by Paul to his friend asking him to release a slave. But it is so much more as we're going to see. But at first, you may be wondering what happened to Onesimus. Did Philemon free him? We aren't told. Some will say Paul's mention of Onesimus in his letter to the Colossians, like we looked at earlier, shows that Onesimus was freed. And it's possible, but Paul wrote both the Colossians and Philemon while imprisoned in Rome. Most likely, both letters were sent at the same time. It would make sense that Onesimus going to Colossae to deliver letters would coincide with his return to Philemon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a historical account that may point to Onesimus being freed by Philemon. Most scholars say that Onesimus was a teenager during this time that he was with Paul. According to Ignatius, who's a Christian historical writer who lived between 108 and 140 AD, he said in 110 AD, the Bishop of Ephesus was named Onesimus. That would be about 50 years after Paul writing this letter for Onesimus's release. So if Onesimus was a teenager at that time, he would be in his 60s around this time. So that's plausible. But some will argue that Onesimus was a fairly common name, so the likelihood that they're the same is pretty remote. But honestly, like you said, Chris, we don't know. We're not told. The Bible doesn't tell us. And that's because whether or not Philemon freed Onesimus isn't the point of this letter. In fact, as we're going to start to answer the questions that we posed at the beginning, we're going to see that the point of this letter is much bigger than it first seems. Yeah. First, since it's been a hot topic throughout history, let's answer if the Bible condones slavery. This is a huge thing. Certainly, slavery was an issue throughout biblical history. 
Abraham and Sarah had at least two servants with the implication that there were many more. Isaac and Jacob also had servants. The original term used for servant in the Old Testament when referring to a female servant means maid or maidservant or slave girl. Similarly, the original term for a male servant means servant or slave. All throughout history, man has jumped on this to show that God approves of slavery. Right before the Civil War, two Southern bishops said that slavery is a tool that God uses. A bishop named Stephen Elliott, who was from Georgia, he said that critics of slavery should consider whether by their interference with this institution, meaning the institution of slavery, they may not be checking and actually impeding a work which is manifestly providential. And then there's another bishop, Bishop Mark Mead, who was of Virginia. And he said this of slaves, is it not possible you may have done some other bad thing which was never discovered and that the almighty God who saw you doing it would not let you escape without punishment one time or another? And ought you not in such a case to give glory to him and be thankful that he would rather punish you in this life for your wickedness than destroy your souls for it in the next? So Chris, does God condone slavery or are people like these two bishops hijacking scripture to justify a sinful practice? Well, this isn't as complicated an answer as people make it out to be. First, slavery in the Bible is not the slavery from British and American history. It was not race-based and slaves were not considered chattel as they were in modern history. But even if slavery in scripture was less barbaric, God still does not condone it. Never has, never will. Slavery is an issue similar to polygamy. Yes, the people of the godly line, including some of the patriarchs, practiced it, but it was never sanctioned by God for his people. In fact, God gave warnings and reprimands about both. On polygamy, he said a man should have one wife and that many wives will lead a man's heart astray. On slavery, God used it as a curse. He cursed Ham's son, Canaan, saying that he and his offsprings would be servants to his brothers. Slavery was God's judgment on pagans. And we see that when his people and God's people enter the promised land. We see some of those groups being put into slavery under God's people. And it's, it was judgment. That's right. But like polygamy, servanthood and slavery had so entrenched itself into the culture, including the culture of the Israelites. Both practices, polygamy and slavery, show how sinful men exerted their will on other human beings, using them for their own desires and their own purposes. Again, Chris, like you said, slavery was used as God's judgment. That wasn't for man to do on his own. Nope. Because it was so entrenched in the culture, God used the law to put limits on it. For example, in Exodus 21-2, God says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. Then we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word doulos can be translated slave or sometimes servant or bondservant. Slaves in the New Testament often had a surprising level of legal and social status in the first century Greco-Roman world. 
most were not born slaves, nor were they slaves for their whole life. The Roman jurist Gaius from the second century said that most slaves were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered if they were not made slaves. So does this mean that God changed his stance? Well, of course not. God never changes. No, God never changes. And people mistake Jesus not speaking in great detail on slavery as his approval of it. But Chris, as you know, Jesus didn't speak a lot on several subjects that are sinful, like the poor treatment of women, yoking yourselves to unbelievers, homosexuality, and other situations. His apostles, especially Paul and John, take up the mantle of clarification on a lot of sinful situations that Jesus doesn't talk a lot about. And since Jesus is the word of God, obviously he approves of every word, letter, and comma contained in it. So that's not an argument. Yes. And Jesus is eternal. He's eternally God. So anything that happened in the Old Testament, it, he didn't change. And this is where the little book of Philemon comes in. Paul may be advocating for the forgiveness and release of one slave, but the implication is that all slaves, especially those who have come to Christ, should be forgiven and freed. Just like the poor treatment of women, Paul's writings try to put godliness in both. On slavery, Paul has no political power to end the practice, none. So he uses the power of the pen to convince believers of its sin. It's why he makes the point to say that there's no difference amongst believers. In Galatians 3, 28 to 29, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Yeah, Paul is using comparisons of privileged versus oppressed here. Jew versus Greek. The Jews considered themselves superior to the Gentiles. Paul knocks that down. Male versus female. Women were not second-class citizens and property and lesser than men. And slave versus free. Whatever your circumstance, as a believer, you are equal in God's eyes, and you should be equal in other believers' eyes. John reiterates this same theme in his book, First John. He says in 1 John 4, verses 11 and 12 and 16 and 17, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then skipping down to verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Both Paul and John and the other New Testament writers remind us that as followers of Jesus, we're called to a new standard, a new level of living. We who have been reborn are no longer dead in our sins, but reborn into God's family. And we need to walk and live in light of that rebirth. 
We need to put sinful practices of the world behind us and live under the authority of the word of God. We should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. That's why Paul is appealing to Philemon as a Christian brother. He was saying to him, while the world would keep Onesimus as a slave and severely punish him for running away, you are not of the world. You are called not only to forgive his running away, but to free him and treat him as a brother. This is an example of the radical selfless love that Christians are called to versus the self-serving love that the world offers. That's right. And Chris, as Paul's words demonstrate, that radical love includes forgiveness, not punishing Onesimus for running away, and reconciliation, freeing him and treating him as a brother. But that wasn't Paul's only reason for writing this letter. It's a big reason, but it's not the only reason. And it's not the only reason God has included it in scripture. Again, it's a big reason. It's just not the only reason. This letter serves as a metaphor for our standing with Jesus. We are all Onesimuses. We were slaves to our sin and to Satan. We were prisoners with no rights before God, and it was completely just that we were under his wrath. Like Onesimus, we sinned against our owner, our creator, and punishment we were to receive was completely just. But rather than exact our due punishment, God not only forgave us, he set us free from our slavery. He calls us children and brothers and sisters. As Paul says in Romans 6, 6 to 8, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We are Onesimus and Philemon is God. We have wronged God and our fate is in the hands of the one who owns us. And where does Paul fit into this metaphor? Well, Paul is Jesus. Paul tells Philemon whatever Onesimus owes, Paul will pay it himself to ensure Onesimus's freedom. Don't get a clearer picture of Jesus paying what we owe God than that. Paul was willing to give whatever was needed to ensure Onesimus would go from slave to free brother in Christ. Jesus has done that same thing for us. He tells God the Father, I will pay what they owe. I will take the punishment they deserve. I will take your wrath upon myself so that they can be free and be my brother or sister. And of course, like Onesimus, we are all much more valuable when we are freed as a brother and sister in Christ than we're slave than when we were slaves to sin. Yep. So, Chris, what we see in this tiny letter from Paul to a friend is that we're to advocate, protect, and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're to do that because our oldest brother has done it perfectly for us. No cost was too high for Jesus to pay to secure our freedom and kinship. And in practicality, no cost should be too high for us to pay for a fellow Christian. Amen to that. And that's a great place to end today. Thanks for listening. 
Have a blessed day, everybody.